Everybody, well, thank you all for being here as always, and uh, we are going to go ahead and turn to the very end of the Bible. So if you have a Bible, turn with us to the very tail end. We'll start really at the tail end of chapter 20 is where we ended last week, and we'll move on into 21 and 22 a little bit today as well. We are almost wrapping up our eschatology section here, and um, the plan is that two weeks from today on September 18th, I believe it is, uh, we will start our cultural uh, series. So we're calling that Against the Culture for the Culture, where we'll be dealing with a lot of the sexual revolution and a lot of issues that are going on today in our culture that we, we really can't avoid. They're, they're all around us, including um, social justice and all those, all those different things that uh, get really confused and I think taught in many cases uh, in a way that is not, not biblical and not helpful. So we'll start that again, Lord willing, in two weeks. Today, our plan is to talk about both hell and new creation, and then next week, we'll wrap up with uh, some final thoughts on those topics and, and try to conclude. Papa Fred, can you uh, open us in prayer, and then we'll jump in? Thank you, Mark. Um, Father God, it is so, um, so exciting, actually, to be uh, nearing the, the end of this book because uh, uh, it affords us the new heavens and the new earth. And uh, even though we're going to touch on, on hell today, uh, obviously our objective is the, the new heavens and the new earth. And um, that, that just brings uh, refreshment to my soul, living waters uh, to my soul uh, as I think about all that we've covered since the first chapter of Revelation. Reminds me of the garden and takes me back to the garden. And, and, and you're restoring and making all things new. So be with us this afternoon uh, in your spirit and refresh us uh, through your word. In the name of Jesus, our mighty Savior, one true and only mediator between ourselves and God Almighty. Amen. Amen. Well, I think we're just going to jump right into the deep end of the pool here at the very beginning. Let me just bring up a question that comes up. It, it, it gets brought up for me when I'm teaching. I'm sure probably, Greg, you, I, don't, I haven't asked you, but you may hear this sometimes in your classes too. A question or a statement that will come up sometimes is the statement that heaven is the presence of God and hell is the absence of God. And um, you've probably heard things like that. Hell is the absence of God. It is, it, is, it is leaving God's presence. And oftentimes there are particular passages of Scripture that are brought up to, to back up that idea. And I think that there is certainly a partial truth to the idea that hell is the absence of God. But I think that at the end of the day, that is an incomplete picture of what hell actually is. And some, some passages that are often mentioned, you can think of Matthew 7 when Jesus says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not perform mighty works in your name? And then Jesus says, I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. And he says, depart from me you workers of lawlessness. Now, the words depart from me clearly have an idea of absence, right? Like leave, depart from me, be away from my presence. And that, that is certainly true. There are other texts, 2 Thessalonians 1 says that when Jesus comes with flaming fire with his angels to judge, it says they, the unbelievers will be, will, be, um, will, will be cast outside of the presence of God's glory, the, the sense of them being cast out. And so um, also Jesus describes it as being cast into outer darkness. So those are definitely biblical categories. I don't want to deny for one second the idea that there is a real absence aspect to hell. 
But I think that if we leave it at just absence of God, I think we have an incomplete picture of what the Bible is actually saying on this topic. Let, let me just take you to a couple spots. So hold your place here in Revelation and turn with me to Hebrews, so to your left, Hebrews chapter 10. Now, I'm going to go ahead and tell you that, again, this is, this is about as intense of a passage about God's judgment as you're going to find. And so we read this with a sense of fear and trembling as we think about what this is describing. But we also don't want to censor or edit what God is saying. We don't want to be embarrassed about it. We want to say it clearly. Here is a picture of, of hell or God's judgment in, in Hebrews 10. Look with me starting at verse, let's start in verse 24, which is a more familiar part. Hebrews 10, 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another, one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For, here's why we must encourage each other daily. For, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the spirit of grace. Has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful, or some translations, a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Greg, just to put you on the spot here, this text, clearly God is active in, in the mode mm -hmm. of judgment. Can you say anything about that? Because so often, whether we're embarrassed to say it or we, Christians just don't want to make, you know, make the gospel sound more appealing, we often leave that side of it out. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it, it plays into a mindset where we feel, God, I mean, God just makes us uncomfortable, like some aspects of who God is and what he does. It just makes us uncomfortable um, and so we try to mitigate it, we try to minimize it, we try to talk around it, because I heard somebody else when I was in college um, make the statement, he was doing like an overview of Revelation, and when it talked about fire and judgment and punishment, it was, well, that's just terminology for God's not there. And it's almost like we have this allergic reaction to God actually, personally, like being involved with the punishment of sinners, like like. That's a bad thing, and we, we can't, we th we're pretty sure the Bible says it, but we got to talk around it as much as we can because, well, that, people really don't like to think of God that way, and if we're honest, we don't like to think of God that way. Um, but if we're going to be faithful to Scripture, we need to let Scripture decide how God is because God's speaking through His Word. And so this is not just a book about God. This is God telling us Himself. So, yes, the author of Hebrews wrote this, but God, by the Spirit, was leading him to write what needed to be wrote or written for us. And so God is saying, this is how I am. And we need to come to a place where even if it's tough, we're like, all right, Lord, uh, my, my heart and my mind might not be fully on board with this, but it's true. I embrace it and I'm not going to apologize for it. And so this place very clearly 
It's not just being separated from God. This is God taking vengeance. And we think, well, God's not that kind. Yes, He is. I mean, we have to remember when we talk about the doctrine of eternal punishment, um, the punishment always fits the crime. You mentioned this, I think, last week. And so when we think about eternal conscious punishment from the Lord for, I mean, it's eternal, it's forever, it's unending, we think, man, that seems really harsh. But in reality, that's what sin deserves. That's what sinners deserve because God can't be unrighteous. He can't be unjust. And so if this is the punishment for those who refuse to repent and turn to him, then it is a fitting and right punishment because I think, I think maybe I got this from Edwards um, or I'm not sure who, but it's like if the punishment is eternal it's because the one who's offended is eternal. Like sin is an offense against a God who is infinite, and it's an infinite offense because it's denying the, the most valuable being in the universe, and so it deserves the harshest um, and severest of, of punishments. And so God is it's right to personally undertake the punishment of sinners, um, and we see that. Again, let the language of the text shape how we think, we, you know, You can outrage the spirit of grace. God is going to come and inflict vengeance and repay. And then it says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You know, God's saying it's a fearful thing to fall into my hands if you're in your sin. And notice it doesn't, doesn't, this this is why we got to be textual in our language, like you're saying. The, The verse doesn't say it's a fearful thing to fall out of the hands of the living God. It's not saying. The punishment isn't being taken away from God. What's the punishment? It's falling into the hands of the living God. And this is where Jonathan Edwards, get, he, he gets all kinds of flack for his infamous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. My, my, we, we were actually, my wife and I were in Massachusetts near where the place was. So actually we took an extra drive and I went to the spot where he preached this sermon back in 17, the 1730s or whatever it was, early 40s. And uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, that title comes from Hebrews 10.31. It wasn't like Edwards was some evil man who wanted to portray God. No, no, no. He got the title from a verse in the Bible. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And uh, Papa Fred, why, why do you think people are so hesitant to speak forthrightly about this subject? We don't want judgment of any kind, uh, I think. Uh, and, and actually, the, the, the text here, it really says will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God. It's not that God has rejected us. We have rejected Mm -hmm. Him. Mm -hmm. We have turned our back on God. We have, uh, uh, you mentioned uh, Jonathan Edwards. I heard that when he would preach sometimes, you know, he would say, you're standing over the the fires of hell, and people would actually raise raise their feet up (laughs) when he would preach. But... God has shown us, you know, from the beginning of the Bible, from Genesis 1 and 2 to Revelation 21 and 22, he's shown us that he wants fellowship. He wants communion. He wants to be our God, and he wants us to be his people. But you reject that. We reject that. There's no alternative. Let me... Uh, go ahead. No, I, I just think that we've, we've spurned God. So therefore, right. he in turn has 
burn dust. Just, just to say a word in, uh, about that sermon again, which is probably the most famous sermon in American history, uh, that sermon in particular. Back when this happened, uh, the Great Awakening was beginning in the colonies, and you had George Whitfield uh, going all over the place across the Atlantic Ocean, back and forth, uh, over and over again, preaching to crowds of tens of thousands of people in open air, which was never, never been done like that before. And people were getting converted by the hundreds and by the thousands. And in Northampton, Massachusetts, which is where Edwards' church was, the, the, some of the churches, some of the pastors got the idea, probably from Whitfield, of traveling to preach more. And so they saw God was using this. The pe preachers would travel around to different churches in the area and preach. And so not far from Northampton, there was Enfield, Massachusetts, which was having a time of not a revival. So all the churches around this area, there were lots of people being revived, people were being converted, Christians were really waking up to eternity and the significance of what we've been saved from, and Enfield was this place that was just dead. So all this fire of God was, was coming around in a good way, and yet this one place was just dead. So they called in Edwards to preach that, that sermon. He'd already preached it at his own church with no remarkable success <laughs> from what they can tell. And when Edwards got there, uh, he began to preach, and they said that people, uh, people were immediately fell under tremendous conviction of sin. And in the midst of him preaching that sermon, saying, you know, talking to non-Christians who were a lot of them in the room, he said, we, we non-believers walk uh, through this life as over a rotten covering, not knowing where there's a soft spot in the covering where they could die at any moment and plummet into where their sins deserve, into hell. And as he preached this sermon, there was an unbelievable move of God's spirit in that place. And people started crying out in the middle of his sermon, uh, I'm, I'm, going to, I'm, going to be, I'm going to perish. I'm going to hell. Lord, please save me. What am I going to do? I'm going to go to hell. And people were crying out. He had to actually quiet the room down because people were becoming, it was a commotion. He had to quiet them down to continue preaching. Before he could finish the sermon, the room turned into an uproar. People crying out for salvation. And Edwards has this famous moment at the end of the sermon where he says, now is the day of mercy. Now Christ has flung the floodgates of mercy wide open. He's beckoning sinners to come in. Please come now and, be re and, and receive Christ. And then he had to finish the sermon before it was over because it was so, there was so much going on. He and another pastor walked into the room and they prayed with individual people in that particular church in Enfield. And a number of people that very night, they think, truly trusted Christ out of their despair. And there was a, a, a real transformation that came from that. But the, the point being this, during that period of time where the Spirit was unusually blessing the preached word in, in the Great Awakening, the preaching was not the kind of preaching people necessarily love today. It was very much in your face about sin, about atonement, about Christ's blood, about forgiveness, about hell, about heaven. It was, it was uncensored preaching, and it hit people with the force of electrical shock when they heard it, and people were, were calling out for God's salvation. They, they, were, they were physically affected. There were physical effects on people when, when they heard this kind of preaching, and the Lord used it to create an, an enormous change in, the early, in, in those early decades in the 1700s here in, in the United States. Uh, other comments on this topic, Greg? Um, Revelation chapter 14, if you'll turn yeah. there. This, too, is one of the clearest texts about the enduring nature of eternal punishment because there's an argument made by some, um, a, a teaching called annihilationism, mm -hmm. that there's real punishment for the wicked, but when it's complete, they're like wiped out and they're gone, no more, they're done, they're annihilated, they don't exist anymore, and... The Bible just does not teach that. Again, if we allow the language of the text to shape how we think, um, then we cannot come to that conclusion. And so let's look at Revelation 14. This is um, beginning in verse 9. Again, I'm not going to try to set up all the context of this. We just don't have time. But it says, Another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, 
If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine. I mean, just listen to the strength of this. The wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he, the one who took the mark of the beast or on his forehead or hand, will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Mm -hmm. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. I mean, in one sense, mankind is sinful mankind will be cut off from the glory of God that the believers will experience. There's an experience of the presence of God that only believers will have for all eternity. And there's an, ex uh, an experience of the presence of God that only unbelievers will have, will have. So when we think about separation, unbelievers will be separated from any positive, beautiful expression of the glory and power and majesty of God. All they will get is God's glory in terms of his vengeance and his punishment of sin. And here's the thing, the angels and the lamb, like this is before them that this is happening. I mean, we, we can't get away from what this says. It's forever and ever. It never stops. Um, and it's in the presence of God. It's in the presence of the lamb and again, this is what is right. This is a fitting judgment for sin. Yeah, and I've heard it said, heaven is the presence of God with a mediator, Jesus. Hell is the presence of God without a mediator. It's me meeting God in my sin, in all my lawlessness, and God reacting as holiness reacts to, to sin, mm -hmm. which is with holy and righteous anger. But if I meet God in Christ... I meet God in a very different way. It's like, imagine a judge who's sentencing a murderer and a rapist to, to, to life in prison or to capital punishment. That, that, that judge is going to have a certain demeanor as he sentences this individual to, to say the death sentence. There's a certain demeanor. But then when that same judge goes home that evening and hugs his son, it's a very different look on the judge's mm -hmm. face, right? And so it's one God, but he's going to react very differently in different situations and in different scenarios. And, and um, yeah, heaven is God with the mediator. Hell is God's presence without a mediator. I think what Greg said is right. Hell is the absence of God in one sense. It's the absence of all his goodness, his blessing, his countenance, his peace, all the joy of knowing God that we experience as Christians, that entirely is taken away. And in that sense, God abandons those in hell. In that sense, he turns away. In that sense, he forsakes. Uh, but it is absolutely his presence, like this verse says, in the presence of the lamb, they experience this judgment. God is present in the mode of wrath or judgment. And let me just say a few criticisms here that I think are due. C.S. Lewis is a wonderful writer, and I have learned a whole lot from him. I still quote him. I, I haven't read him in a while, but I, he's a great writer. I mean, I, I, I like C.S. Lewis, generally speaking. But on the issue of hell, Lewis is not the guy to go to. Lewis talks about hell entirely as the absence of God. He never speaks about it, as far as I can tell, as God actively punishing sinners. He, he seems to be averse to that, and he focuses on the absence of God. Hell is, he says, the door of hell is locked from the inside. Our own sins lock us in hell. Well, that's not the right way to frame it. And uh, Tim Keller also has followed in C.S. Lewis's train how he speaks about hell and reason for God is, is very unhelpful. He, he says the same basic thing, that it's the absence of God, not in any sense God's presence. And uh, even our beloved John Stott, who was a great New Testament commentator, his commentators are generally phenomenal. Mm -hmm. He favored 
He never came out, I don't think clearly, but he, he favored uh, annihilationism, which is mm. shocking to me. But he, he favored the view that God, that this does not go on forever, that after a certain number of years, maybe a thousand years or a hundred years or a million years, you eventually basically pay off your sins and you, you cease to exist. You're, you're annihilated. And he said the reason he thinks that, he, I think he basically admitted it wasn't so much exegesis, that, like interpreting the Bible that got him there. It was the feeling of knowing people who are lost, who've died in their sin. And he said the thought of imagining them staying in that state of torment forever was almost emotionally intolerable. And that's what actually made him push toward annihilationism. Well, I understand the emotional impulse to want to go there, but we can't be based on feeling. We, we got to be based on the text. And this text, among many others, is, is I think, crystal clear. I yeah. mean, verses 10 and 11, I don't think you can get around. Those are mm -hmm. so clear on, on this point. Um, Papa Fred, any other comments on that? I think I, I, I always go back. You know, I, I will listen to sinners in the hands of an angry yeah. God from time to time just to remind myself of, of the gravitas, I guess, of hell and, and, and the way, it's, way Edwards portrays it. Uh, because it, he did have a massive impact on evangelism in New England in the, in the Great Awakening. So I, I think if churches would, would preach this way, uh, they would preach the, the Bible, then, then we'd have a different reaction. It's amazing, not to keep going about that sermon in particular, but that sermon is sort of a symbol for a larger issue. Mm -hmm. that, that sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, if you've never read it or listened to it, you can listen to it on YouTube or you can read it online for free. I, I recommend Somebody it. read it. It's not Edwards himself. No, it's not, it's not Edwards himself. <laughs> it is definitely someone else reading it. But you, you can read it for free or listen online. And I will say that as absolutely stunning it may be to listen to it for the first time, um, I think Don Carson said, you'll be hard-pressed to find one statement in that sermon that is not an allusion to Scripture. So like, he'll say something in there, you go, that can't be biblical. And then you find it's in Psalm chapter 7. Like God has wet the bow, he has bit and ready the spear, he's ready to, he's like incredibly graphic, God is turning the bow back on the wicked, he's about to let the, the arrow go. Or God hates the evildoer and the one who loves unrighteousness in Psalm 5, 5 and Psalm 11, 5 and 6. You, you, you think Edwards is making up these crazy statements, you realize he's getting them from Psalm 5, 7 and 11. He's getting them from Deuteronomy, he's getting them from Re Revelation. And I, I, think about it like this. Um, there, there's a statement in that sermon that, that it's just incredible to think about, honestly. He, he, he talks to the unbelievers in the room that day, and he says, there has not been one reason why, since you got out of bed this morning, God has not let you drop into the pit of hell except for his sheer mercy. There has not been one reason why, since you've been sitting in this holy moment of church, uh, dishonoring God with your unholy motives. There's not been one reason why since you've been sitting in that very seat, God has not let you drop into the pit of hell except for his sheer mercy. And th those are statements we almost never hear, but it's actually true. For a person in a state of condemnation, Jesus said, if you, if you, if you uh, obey the Son, you're, you're, you're rescued from condemnation. But for those who do not obey the Son, the wrath of God abides on them, rests over their head. And Edwards brings that out in, in great drama and clarity in that sermon. And so I recommend it as a place to go just to hear unusually uh, biblical and intense uh, preaching on that topic. Before, before we move on, let me, let me just say this. The, the most astonishing thing about the doctrine of the wrath of God is that Jesus endured that on the cross. So Jesus did not go to hell and get tormented after he died. There's sometimes that's been a notion in the church that Jesus died and went to hell and was tormented in hell for, few, for, the, for, the, you know, for the three days. That's not true. Jesus did not get tormented after his death. On the cross, he said, it is 
finished, not I'm about to go to hell for two days, three days. It is finished. He exhausted the wrath of God on the cross. At the moment of his death, God's wrath was, was, was completely removed for all who would ever trust Christ. But on the cross, Jesus experiences both the abandonment of God, why have you forsaken me, which is God turning away the countenance of the smile of his face away from Jesus. There was the cold, empty darkness of God's forsakenness. But at the same time, Isaiah 53.10 says, it pleased Yahweh, that's God the Father, it pleased God to crush him. So he was both absent, forsaking Jesus, he was also present, crushing Christ with the weight of our sin and his wrath. And so Jesus experienced both the abandonment of God in terms of his smile, but also the presence of God in his crushing wrath. And Jesus drank the cup, the cup mentioned here in Revelation 14, the cup of wrath. Jesus drank that cup dry on the cross, proving that he has made a way for sinners to be made right with him that goes beyond any kind of imagination. That God's son would endure that is the shock of the gospel and, and the, the, the really the most incredible truth in, in, all, of the, in all of Scripture. I'm good. Okay, let, let's move on now to the, the really positive side. Let's go to the end of Revelation again, chapter 21. Greg, could you read the first uh, eight verses? Yeah, all right. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son." But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Just as you read verse 8, look back at verse 8. The first vice or sin on the list is cowardliness. That's on the list with murderers and the sexually immoral and idolaters, coward, cowards, cowardly. Um, just as exhortation, especially with the culture as it is, if there has ever been a time for Christian courage in the face of opposition, it is this moment that we're living in right now. Uh, Christians who capitulate to the culture, so they avoid getting themselves in trouble, those are the cowardly. People who say, I'm going to give up my Christian convictions and biblical clarity for the sake of not offending people who, who are going to be offended by things that shouldn't be offensive that's cowardliness. We've got to be courageous and hold true to the Bible no matter what is going on around us. But Greg, can you, can you introduce us to, this, to these last uh, verses here? Yeah, I would be happy to. Um, so last two chapters of the Bible, um, God introduces a new creation. Um, I mean, look at verse, verse 1 of chapter 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. So whatever the old creation was, it's not here anymore at this point. It's gone. 
Something new is here. And he says the sea was no more. And so this is the fundamental, one of the fundamental distinctions between the creation that we live in now versus the creation that God is going to bring after the final judgment. This creation is marked by having a sea. And this is not a body of water here. Remember, the sea in Revelation is a reference to the source of chaos, the source of rebellion. You know, the beast comes out, the Antichrist comes out of the sea um, and all of that. So it's, it's this source of chaos and rebellion and destruction, um, all, you know, rebellion against God, destruction of the world and stuff like that. That's gone. There is no source of corruption, chaos, anything in this new creation. It's gone. There, you know, because we wonder, you know, how, how can we be sure that there won't be another fall like there was in the Garden of Eden? Well, God has removed the source of all that. There's not going to be anywhere for, because he goes on later to say nothing unclean will ever come. There's nowhere for unclean to come from. It's been completely removed. There is nothing that can come into this new creation and spoil it. And man, that's good news, y'all. I mean, that is good news. And so he, he sees this new creation, this new heaven, this new earth. There's no way this can be corrupted. Verse 2, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. One of the, the biggest things we're going to see this week and next week is that we see this city, but the city is the people. Like, this is the crazy part. Because you look at verse 9, um, the, this angel takes John and he says, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And what does John see? He sees the city. And so the people of God are going to be talked about in terms of a city structure. And uh, what, we can develop this a little more later, but he's talking about the, the, the people of God as his dwelling place. Okay, That's the significance here because, look at verse 3. This is something I, I, I was looking at this this morning. I, I messaged these guys because it really got me excited. If we read verse 3, um, I think in a better way than the ESV says it here, listen to this. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, with man. He will tabernacle with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. You know, we, we make a big deal about John 1.14 where it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've said it numerous times, that word dwelt is really he pitched his tent. He tabernacled. You know, the, the, the tabernacle in the wilderness where God was with his people, the presence of God with his people, that's the exact same verb and noun, the same root word that was used in John 1.14 is used here. And so God's saying the dwelling place of God, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will tabernacle with them. And so this new creation is marked by the presence of God in a way that humanity has never experienced it before, even in the Garden of Eden. Even in the Garden of Eden. Um, this is greater than that. God, in his unrestrained presence, is dwelling with man. And so we, we can't think anymore in terms of um, segregating out. You've got the presence of God here. You've got people here. No, like the presence of God is everywhere now. The, the whole new creation, the whole new heaven and new earth is the presence of God. We'll see that more when we get in later into this chapter. But let that land on us. There's nowhere we can go where we can say in this new creation, well, I want to get back to where God is because God's everywhere. Yeah, I've heard it said uh, 
that if you think of heaven as sort of the, a name for God's place in the, in the Bible and earth as the name of like our place, heaven and earth were in a sense married in the Garden of Eden. You had God walking in the garden with his people, God's presence and our presence, heaven and earth were, were one really in that moment in, in Genesis 1 and 2, and it was wonderful. There was no need for a giant curtain between us and God. There was no need for a holy of holies to separate us and our sin from God. We didn't need animal sacrifice. It was just God and Adam and Eve were walking together in the garden, and there was no, no separation. Heaven and earth were, in a sense, married together in Eden. When the fall happened, Adam and Eve were kicked out, and there's a separation. And for the rest of the Bible, it's trying to put these things back together. Let, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let, the, let these two spaces become one again. And at the end of the Bible, finally, it comes true. God's space, the heavenly Jerusalem, comes down and unites with the earth, and suddenly God is dwelling with us uninterrupted. No buildings, no tabernacles between us and God. God is there. In fact, like you mentioned previously, the, the, sh the city is shaped like a perfect cube. Mm -hmm. And the only other cubic object in the entire Bible is the Holy of Holies. This is no subtle allusion to the Holy of Holies. This is the only, there are only two cubes in the Bible. One is the Holy of Holies in Solomon's temple, and mm -hmm. the other one is the New Jerusalem. Why would they be the two cubes? Because that's where God's uninterrupted presence is. Heaven and earth overlap in the Holy of Holies. God's presence and our presence are in the same place. And suddenly the New Jerusalem, the new creation, is going to be a gigantic, unimaginably massive, this is, I think, symbolic language, mm -hmm. but a massive Holy of Holies. A, God's presence is going to be as present everywhere in the new creation as it was in the Holy of Holies in Solomon's temple. Let the glory of the Lord fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. I've heard somebody say, I don't know if you've been to the ocean recently, but there's water everywhere, okay? When, when you go to the ocean, there's water everywhere. Well, God's glory is going to be as present all over the world in the new creation as, as the waters cover the sea today. Yeah. Uh, Luke, well, go ahead. Well, and further, the, in, in verse 2, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Isaiah, this whole first eight verses, all of them, in fact, have tremendous numbers of allusions to, to the Old Testament. Isaiah 54, 5, for your maker is your husband. I'll, that, that verse always has just, in fact, actually, there's about four verses. But um, Mark's preaching on marriage and the importance of marriage. There'll be no marriage in, in the new heavens and the new earth. And God will be our husband, the husband of the church, and we'll be his bride. I never thought of myself as a bride. <laughs> but uh, th that's part of the new heavens and the new earth, though. That's something to, to look forward to. Uh, you know, and then, then you mentioned the uh, loud voice saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God tabernacle with man. Leviticus says that, and I will work, walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. But, but God was still separated then. Mm -hmm. He was in this, in this cube, mm -hmm. uh, not, not in reality, but symbolically was a, that was his residence. Now he'll be with us. He will be our God and we will be his people and we will see him face to face. Yeah, there's that amazing verse. I don't even remember where it is in Isaiah, but it says, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride so will the Lord rejoice over you. I mean, there's, there's a way to read that verse that's wrong, right? There's, there's, mm -hmm. an, there's a, kind of a, an egotistical way of reading that verse, kind of a me-centered way. But there, there's a, an absolutely biblical way to read that verse. That verse is in Scripture for a reason. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, the Lord will rejoice over you. I mean, th that is, that's a verse to hold on to and just think about, that God truly, in Christ, He delights in His bride. He delights in His people. He doesn't sit there going, oh, man, 
when are these people going to get their act together? He, he delights in, in his people, and he's, he's obviously holding onto our hand and bringing us to, to maturity. Well, I like, I like the idea, verse 4 leads us to, is God getting up close and personal. I mean, you think about, you know, Genesis 1 is kind of the big sweep of creation, and then Genesis 2, it's like it zooms in on day 6 when God creates, um, creates man and the animals and all of that. And you see God like getting his hands in the dirt, forming man and all of that and blowing the breath of life. You know, here, verse 4, it says, he will wipe away every tear. It doesn't just say you won't cry anymore. It says God's going to wipe your tears. I mean, you think about um, when you've gone, I mean, you know, when you're little and you cry, mom and dad wipe your face. But, you know, you think about when you're going through a time of grief and you have someone to comfort you, someone to, to really be there for you, um, like, that's the imagery here. God is going to come up close and personal and wipe our tears away. And then, like, we're going to realize all that brought, all that was the occasion for tears in this world. Death, he says, no more. Neither shall there be mourning. There will be no sadness in heaven, in the eternal state, nor crying nor pain, because they're gone. They're gone. And God isn't going to be sitting at a distance saying, hey, this is a truth you need, you need to get on board with. He's going to be, hey, I've taken care of all of that. It's going to be all right. Like It's, it's that kind of close-up imagery. And, and that, that seems weird to say that, because God is holy, He is righteous, and we think, you know, throne, meet little me. But that's the closeness that we will have with God. And I mean, that should take our breath away. Like that should, that should give us pause and, and make us just stop and, and sit and stare at God or think about God in awe and wonder because our holy God is going to come that close and comfort us and renew us and assure us of, of what he's about to do. Yeah, if, if you think about, you remember the story of Esther when she's married to, is it Ahasuerus or whatever, Xerxes, yeah. depending on the translation, but she's married to Ahasuerus, who's not a good guy, and uh, Remember, it's illegal for even she, his wife, to come before him, the king, uh, unless he calls her. And if she comes in to see the king, her own husband, and he's not having a good day, he doesn't raise his scepter, she gets killed because it's, it's a capital punishment if you come see the king without being asked, even your wife. And so, uh, you know, she, she has to say, if I perish, I perish. I've got to go try to rescue my people. I'm going to go in there at the risk of my life. And he, of course, lets her in. But Spurgeon points out, when, when you talk about dignitaries and kings, there's always levels of authority where the king's way up at the top of the mountain and you can never really get directly to the king, right? It's always, you got to go through all these back stairs and you got to talk to all these other people and you kind of talk to someone who knows someone who knows someone who can finally talk to the big person at the top of the pyramid. But Spurgeon said, how about this? God is at the top of all the pyramids. He's the highest of the highest, the king of kings. And he personally condescends to deal with his people. He comes personally to wipe the tears from our eyes. He personally hears our, us pray. I was thinking the other day, this is a little off topic, but I was thinking the other day, uh, imagine you know, you, a celebrity's coming to town and you, you'll have maybe 30 seconds to meet the celebrity. Well, people get in a huge line in downtown. I remember when Justin Timberlake came to downtown Athens. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, people, people, there's huge lines of people. Justin Timberlake was like near the parking deck in downtown. Oh my goodness, he's filming some movie. And there's huge crowds of people just trying to catch a glimpse of Justin Timberlake coming on some stairs, which doesn't sound like the best use of your life, but that's what some people are doing. And it's like people will do anything just to catch a glimpse of some celebrity, some famous person. Well, this blew me away. Like, if God were to make it to where we could only pray for one 24-hour period a year, Peter said, okay, 
I'm God. You don't have to, I don't have to open the doors of heaven to listen to you. I'm going to give you one 24-hour period a, a year where you can pray, and I'll actually listen to you and answer your prayers. My goodness, we would be so excited about that one day. We'd be getting ready for it. We'd spend probably the whole day awake praying until the end of that day. God would be perfectly just to give us no days of prayer. But God says, hey, the throne of grace is always open. I am always accessible. When you wake up at three in the morning worried about whatever's going on in your life, you can throw it, you can toss that prayer up to heaven and I am there to hear it. You can roll your burdens off onto my shoulders and I will bear them for you. That is open 24-7, 365. God's throne of grace is always available. And so many of these kings are untouchable, but God is personal. He's near us. He cares. He's, he's intimately involved in the, in the lives of his people. There's a communion. Well, of course, you're talking about Today, he's yeah. our great high priest, Hebrews 4, so we have access to it. Here, we will have personal access. Right. You know, he's going to tabernacle, as Greg said, with us. I mean, he's, I, you know, I can't, somebody asked me the other day, said, what are we going to be doing in heaven? I, I'm not totally sure, but I do know we're going to be worshiping, and, and we're going to be with the Lamb forever and ever. So, you know, to have that kind of access, you're talking about Timberlake, he's just an entertainer. But what about the, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world? To have personal communion with him, that's, that's incredible. Incredible. And heaven won't be boring. No, no. not at all. Like, we, we, we fall into the trap, like, man, all I'm going to be doing is being in the presence of God and worshiping? I mean, one, if that's all we did, we would not bemoan that. Um, yeah because we'd see him, and to see him would be enough. Mm -hmm. Like, to behold him and just sit and behold God for all eternity would captivate our souls in a way nothing on this earth can, and we would never grow tired of just standing in his presence and singing his praises. I think, I think we are going to be doing more than that. Like, everything will be an act of worship in one way or another, but if that's all we did, we would not get bored. Mm -hmm. We would be so full. Imagine just... Imagine for a moment, we've all had these moments where when we are singing praise to God, when we're praying, it just, you know, God grants these uh, sometimes where we, we feel like we have transcended this earth and like it, it's just, it's in a different experience where, you know, we feel God is nearer and all of that. And we, we're like, if this could last forever, I would be okay. We've all had those moments. And like, so take that, one of those moments, which usually doesn't last, because either we got something else to do, we got to go to bed, whatever, um, it's limited. Take that moment and then multiply the experience 10,000 fold and then say it never stops. You don't get bored in worship of God. We can't, it's impossible. If we ever find ourselves on this earth bored with it, it's not because there's something deficient in God. It's because there's something deficient in us. But in this new heavens and new earth, all the deficiencies in us are going to be removed. We won't get tired. We won't get distracted. We won't start thinking about, well, I got to go do this and I got to go do that and I got to take care of this. There will be no distractions. We will be able to give our hearts and minds fully to the Lord as we sing and prayer be transformed because we'll see him, but all our response to God, there will be nothing to take away from that. So if all we did was worship, that would be okay for the rest of eternity. 
We would never get bored. We would never be tired of it. We would never complain. We'd never groan. We would be satisfied beyond our wildest dreams forever. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, just to think about that, I mean, anything that you've ever enjoyed, whether you've been to like a concert or a fireworks display or the Grand Canyon or seeing some incredible work of art or being at some athletic event where just the most incredible experience, it's like, I can't believe I got to see that game live or whatever it was. Those are tiny glimmers and refractions of the source that they come from. Human athletic ability is a tiny refraction of God's glory. They're image bearers of God doing amazing things on the baseball field or the football field or wherever. Those are tiny, tiny, dim little reflections of the source, God, the maker. Or when you go to the Grand Canyon, I mean, God carved the Grand Canyon with his pinky finger, okay? It's nothing. These things are nothing compared to God. When we look up at the night sky and you see the stars and you study the galaxies and you see this new telescope up there giving us these new amazing images of, of galaxies far away from us, these are but the tiniest dim image of the source, which is God himself. So if someone goes, God would be boring, but man, I could just do endless baseball would be exciting. Well, you, we've got it exactly backwards. The baseball is a little reflection of God. The, the, the sports, the, the, the movie, the whatever, the entertainment that seems so exciting and glorious is a tiny reflection of God. So I think we need to do some translation. Instead of thinking God's boring and the world's exciting, we should think the world's mostly boring. God's the, the one who's the one who's exciting. And um, yeah, that, that's, that's significant. And, and he says this really in, in verse 6. And he says to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Mm. That, that speaks to his sovereignty. Three times in Revelation, uh, three is one of those numbers that's often repeated. One, eight. Uh, 21, 6 and 22, 13, he says he's the Alpha and the Omega. And uh, com one of the commentaries said that's an ancient form of expression. Mm -hmm. And that means you know, he's the, the beginning and the end, the, the all things uh, in his sovereignty. So whether it be a football game on Saturday afternoon or a concert or something like that, no, no, this is, this is the beginning and the end. This is all, and all things in between. So we won't get bored. No. Mm -hmm. Well, we are almost out of time here. Uh, look again at verse 7 of 21, chapter 21. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. You see here, interestingly, God's people are called sons of God in the Bible, and they're also called the bride of Christ, right? Because both those gender-specific things are describing different aspects of salvation. And um, here again, we're called sons. Earlier, we're called the bride in the same passage. But these are all telling us different things. Different, different ways of getting at the truth of, of the inheritance that we have in Christ. Any closing thoughts? That word conquer is, is nikeo, uh, overcomer. Is this where we get the word Nike, right? Nike from. Yeah. yeah. If you've got Nikes on, That's right. <laughs> you're an overcomer. Victory. <laughs> the one who conquers uh, will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. Wow. Mm. Greg, can you close us in yeah. prayer? Yeah, well, let's pray. Father... Lord, I pray that we would truly tremble when we think about the reality of your judgment. God, think, when we think about what we deserve, what is the right payment to us for our sin, God, I pray that we would tremble because we know that in and of ourselves there is nothing we can do to escape that. And yet we look at the cross and we see a Savior, the Son of God, in human flesh, taking our payment in full on Himself. 
so that there is nothing left. The cup of wrath is drained dry for us who believe. And to know that on the other side of this life, on the other side of the final judgment, is an existence that is almost beyond even imagining. It is so great. But that is what you have promised to us. God, our our minds cannot conceive what it will be like to behold you with our physical eyes and to not die, but to live. God, our hearts can scarcely imagine the joy that will be experienced in your presence and with so many countless numbers of saints as well. Lord, we know that when Jesus comes back, it means resurrection, it means final judgment, and it means the new creation with you forever. And it's to no small effect that John says the one who hopes in that day and in Christ will make himself pure because we know that when you come back, Lord Jesus, we will be like you because we will see you. It is the blessed hope. It is the beatific vision. It is what our souls need and should long for more than anything else. And I pray, Lord, that, that even just a little bit more this week, each one of us would long to see the face of our Savior. And may that shape us and transform us and break the power and the promise and the pleasure of sin because we know we have something that lasts forever and it is far greater. And it will come. And so, Lord, help us to, to keep these things close to our hearts and minds. And Lord, I pray that we'd be able to walk with you just a little bit closer this week because of this and that we'd be able to talk a little bit easier about you to those around us because of the reality of what we know is coming for those who belong to you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, just we will uh, cover this one more week next week and then two weeks from today we'll start the cultural series, Lord willing. Thank you.